Hey everyone, we are kicking off our June 2022 series of episodes here at Aminder. In this short and sweet episode, we'll take a look at papers published on the subject of changes to synaptic transmission and neuronal excitability in Alzheimer's disease. Let's jump right in after a brief introduction from our co-founder, Sarah. Welcome to Aminder a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on Alzheimer's disease for you, so you can spend more time doing awesome research. For every month, you'll find a series of episodes by theme, and each comes with a bibliography. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. Welcome, or welcome back to A Minder. My name is Anusha, and I'm your host for this episode. Before we head into the papers, I just want to describe the process behind making an episode of Aminder. It all starts with our sorting team, who go through hundreds of abstracts every month published about Alzheimer's disease onto the PubMed database. They then sort each abstract into a theme, and a few of those themes are covered by hosts such as myself. My job as a host is to read through the abstracts and summarize them in my own words, and record them into an intelligible episode. Some hosts, including me, also edit their own episodes, but we've got a brilliant team of dedicated editors that polish these episodes into the gems that you hear. There's also a part for you to play in all of this. The role of quality control. I'll leave it up to you to assess these papers for scientific merit. Our bibliography team has even created a numbered bibliography for each subject matter to make that job easier. The one that accompanies this episode can be found in the episode notes or on our website at aminder.com. In other exciting news, we are going to be starting a Patreon page and wanted your input on the kinds of things that Aminder could offer its listeners. Please send us your ideas through email at aminderpodcast at gmail.com or get in touch with us over social media. Without further ado, let's get into our episode. We've got five papers that all converge on the topic of changes to synaptic or neuronal function and how this could contribute to Alzheimer's disease, which I'll be referring to as AD henceforth. Let's dive into our first paper, which characterizes neurotransmitter receptor distributions and maps them onto brain imaging modalities in order to create better models for AD brains. Paper number one is titled, Personalized Brain Models Identify Neurotransmitter Receptor Changes in Alzheimer's Disease. Their first author is Khan, and the last author is Ituria Medina, and this was published in the journal Brain. The authors are affiliated with the Montreal Neurological Institute in Canada, as well as several research institutes located in Germany. This paper is a welcome departure from our normal techniques as it aims to develop a better model for AD brains. This new brain model maps the distribution of 15 different receptors for neurotransmitters onto whole brain postmortem brain scans. They incorporated data using six different neuroimaging modalities from the ADNI database, which consists of 423 aged heterogeneous brains. 
Combining the neurotransmitter receptor autoradiography with the neuroimaging data explained roughly 70% of the variance observed in the longitudinal imaging data. It also explained up to 40% of the variability in cognitive deterioration within the AD cohort of 25 people. They also found significant alterations in the interactions between glutamate, GABA, or acetylcholine receptors with tau accumulation. Authors reported significant interactions with GABA and glutamate receptors with disrupted neuronal activity, as well as a further interaction between GABA receptors and amyloid accumulation. The authors conclude their abstract by suggesting that these data could be combined to generate a fingerprint of receptor alterations that could improve our understanding of both disease progression and heterogeneity, as well as use this information to treat individuals using a personalized treatment regime. Moving on to our second paper, we have biophysical KV3 channel alterations, dampen excitability of cortical PV interneurons, and contribute to network hyperexcitability in early Alzheimer's. The first author is Ola, last author is Rowan, and this was published in the journal eLife. Authors are affiliated with Emory University and the Broad Institute in the United States. Let's delve into neuropathology a bit further with this next paper. Here, authors wanted to test the theory that parvalbumin interneurons may contribute to the dysregulation of cortical excitability. This is based on the observation that these interneurons show altered firing rates before neighboring neurons in AD. However, I will counter this line of thinking for a moment because I've covered papers that suggest that parvalbumin interneurons are particularly resistant to neurodegeneration and alter their firing patterns in a compensatory way before they are ultimately degraded. Anyways, back to this paper. They found that biophysical modulation of KV3 potassium channels were altered in young 5X FAD mice, which model familial AD. This affected potassium conductance independent of protein or mRNA expression of the channel. These changes also explained changes to near-threshold action potential firing of the interneurons, which then led to the hyperexcitability of the network. They suggest, therefore, that cortical hyperexcitability could be treated in Alzheimer's disease by targeting ion channel conductance changes. We were on the subject of cholinergic interneuron activity with that last paper, which transitions us nicely into our next paper on acetylcholine receptors on striatal medium spiny neurons. This is paper number three, phosphoproteomic of the acetylcholine pathway enables discovery of the PKC-beta PIX-RAC1 PAC cascade as a stimulatory signal for aversive learning. The first author is Yamahashi, and the last author is Kaibuchi, and this was published in the journal Molecular Psychiatry. Authors are spread out through several institutions which are all based in Japan. It's already known that dopamine receptor D2 expressing medium spiny neurons in the striatum regulate aversive learning. 
Other findings have implicated the muscarinic acetylcholine M1 receptors. But little is known about how acetylcholine contributes to this kind of learning. Authors characterized acetylcholine's activation of aversive learning in mice. I do want to point out that they don't specify what kind of model this was and whether it was meant to model AD. They found that acetylcholine activates protein kinase C in the striatum and, more specifically, the nucleus accumbens. Phosphoproteomic analysis identified potential substrates for protein kinase C, including an effector for the Rho GTPAs called RAC1. They found evidence of activation of RAC1's effector, called PAC, upon aversive stimulus exposure. To confirm this mechanism, they mutated PAC in D2 receptor-expressing medium spiny neurons. This altered dendritic spine plasticity and aversive learning. Denepazil, which is an AD drug used to improve cognition, activated PAC in both nucleus accumbens and in the hippocampal CA1 region. It also improved behavioral measures of aversive learning. I know that was a pretty dense summary, but just to reiterate their findings, they characterized a cascade that starts with acetylcholine and ends with PAC signaling that is implicated in aversive learning, and this pathway could be targeted further for drug development. This is a good spot to take a short break and hear from our sponsor, the CCNA, as well as from one of our managers, Lara. I'm Lara from the bibliography team here at Aminder. Did you know the episode you're listening to has a numbered bibliography that you can find in our show notes or directly on our website? And all of our episodes come with their own bibliography so that you can easily find and look into the papers that interest you. If you're also interested in keeping up to date with scientific publications in Alzheimer's research and working in collaboration with other teammates, we would love it if you consider joining us. Send your CV and an indication of what you're interested in doing with us to aminder.com podcast at gmail.com. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Nearly one million older Canadians live with a form of dementia. This number is expected to double within 10 years, and sadly no solutions exist yet to dramatically reduce these numbers. It has to stop. Research can help solve this problem. Near 350 researchers fully dedicated towards preventing and finding a cure to dementia and to improve care to those living with dementia. We are the Canadian Consortium on Neurodegeneration and Aging. The solution to dementia could be closer than you think. Okay, we're back. And now, switching brain regions from the striatum to the primary somatosensory cortex. While this paper isn't directly testing disease progression of AD, it is characterizing gait and movement coordination difficulties that often lead to falls in both the elderly and in individuals with AD. Paper number four of the episode is titled, Sensitivity of the S1 Neuronal Calcium Network to Insulin and BAE-K8644 in vivo, Relationship to Gait, Motivation, and Aging Processes. 
The first author is Lin, and the last author is Thibault, and this was published in the journal Aging Cell. Authors are affiliated with University of Kentucky in the USA. We have covered many papers on hippocampal dysfunction in AD in the past, and also a few papers more specifically looking at calcium homeostasis in those neurons. However, the researchers of this paper wanted to better characterize both network function and in vivo calcium dynamics within that network. They did this by testing a major input region of the brain, the primary somatosensory cortex, also known as the S1 cortex. They used single-cell in vivo calcium imaging to characterize S1 calcium changes in young and aged male Fisher 344 rats. As far as I know, this is more of a model of aging rather than AD explicitly. They also tested for ambulatory performance and found that aged animals had decreased movement speed as well as overall more calcium activity in S1. They report that the network connectivity was increased in older animals, but don't specify how they measured that. They were able to partially phenocopy older animals by injecting the L-type calcium channel modifier BayK864. Therefore, calcium dysregulation occurs not only in the hippocampus, but is also found in other brain areas like S1 that contribute to locomotion and motivation. They were able to rescue some of the changes in older animals with intranasal delivery of insulin, which could be looked into further as a treatment option for improving motor coordination and reducing the number of falls in the elderly. Finally, we have our fifth paper of the episode, Hippocampal Iron Accumulation Impairs Synapses and Memory Via Suppressing Furin Expression and Downregulating BDNF Maturation. The first author is Zhang and the last author is Gao, and this was published in the journal Molecular Neurobiology. Authors are affiliated with the Hebei Normal University in China. We end our episode with a paper that explores the role of iron in AD pathology. Previous literature correlated more iron in the brain with increased pathogenesis of AD, and this paper sought to characterize that finding and the mechanism behind it a little bit further. They focus on the protein furin, which catalyzes the cleavage and maturation of several hormones and proteins. They hypothesized that altered furin expression could contribute to AD pathology and tested this hypothesis in the transgenic APP-PS1 mouse model of Alzheimer's disease. They found that furin expression in the hippocampus of mutant animals was significantly reduced. In wild-type animals, they were able to phenocopy this by injecting iron into the hippocampus which led to the reduction of furin levels in these animals. In vitro, it was further found that reduction of furin led to transcriptional inhibition. They also report that maturation of the neuromodulator BDNF was impaired, and that synaptogenesis-related genes were downregulated. This all correlated with cognitive decline. Finally, they were able to rescue these changes by administering iron chelators or by overexpressing furin levels. Altogether, 
Their data suggests that iron accumulation impedes furin transcription, and this could underlie the iron-mediated damage to synaptic structure and memory function in AD. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode, but there are plenty more subjects yet to be covered in this series. Judy's hosting an episode on cognitive and behavioral changes which covers more human-centric studies. Or, if the interaction between APOE and AD is more tantalizing to your ears, Cassie will be hosting that episode in a couple of weeks. We release new episodes three times a week, so there are lots of episodes for you to discover. If you've been getting a lot out of this podcast, please consider leaving us a review on the platforms that you use to reach us, or connect with us over social media if you'd like to stay in touch. We're also recruiting for various volunteer positions on our team, and I would absolutely love having more editors on board. So consider this my plea to you potential sound wizards out there. Send your CV to aminderpodcast at gmail.com if you'd like to join us. Lastly, thank you to our sorting and management teams, whose names are credited in the episode notes and whose work is crucial behind the scenes to keep Aminder a well-oiled machine. Special thanks to Ellen Kosh for reviewing my script and edited episode. If you like this song that you're hearing in the background, that is something that I wrote called Journey of a Neurotransmitter. You can check it out or any of my other songs on my SoundCloud page under Anusha Kamesh or on YouTube under AK Music. All that being said, we hope you found our podcast useful and accessible, and I hope you come back to visit us again. Bye-bye.